We already saw the verse I want to share with you for just a moment in our responsive reading, but it's an important enough verse that I want us to take a look at again. It's found in Jude, verse 3, and declares, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This verse is very important, crucially important. Contend for the faith. Uh, Chuck Beam, in a sermon on this passage of Scripture, uh, said the word contend in Jude's day was used by the people of the day to describe, of all things, wrestling. Yeah, wrestling, Greco-Roman wrestling. Uh, and the great games uh, continue to be done today. This is not a team sport as such. This is pitting one man against another man. And now, women against women as well. And it is is an up-close and personal battle. So he says, I want you to wrestle for the faith. I want you to contend, to fight, to defend the faith. And then he says, I also want you to notice how it describes faith. It's not talking about a personal opinion, but a body of truth. He said, it's not our faith or your faith, it is the faith. Then Beam said, there's no room for man-made religion when it comes to God's Word. It is not a buffet line where you can just pick and choose what you want to believe while leaving the things that you don't like off your plate. Well, brothers and sisters in the Lord, I'm not sure that I have ever had as strong a sense as I do right now that we need to be contending for the faith. We need to be involved in defending the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, we, we sang a couple of battle songs, and I hope you noticed that the battle songs were saying this is... We're not going to wrestle people into faith. We're not going to go after them with a sword. But we have a task. We are fighting for our life today in many ways. So I want to look at what Paul had to say in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version today. By reading this text and opening our heart, we can have, gain a sense of this necessity that is before us. And if you will stand as we hear from the Word of God together. And as always, I ask you, listen carefully with both ears and all of your heart to what God had to say to His people. Paul wrote, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that we might, they might bring us into slavery, To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved 
for you. And may God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now I'm going to open up by letting you know this passage has, surprise, caused a bit of controversy and interpretation through the years. Um, in the book of Acts, there are five trips to Jerusalem located. And we don't know for sure where this trip fit into those five. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail uh, and break down all of the events, but I will tell you, I am uh, one of those who believe that this, this visit to Jerusalem fits really well with Paul's trip to Jerusalem recorded in Acts chapter 11, which was the famine trip when he was bringing all of the, all of the offerings to Jerusalem. Uh, just real quickly, the main reasons I look at this, uh, others say it's Acts 15, the Jerusalem conference. Well, there are some differences here. This meeting is a private meeting. It involves Paul and Leaders of the church who were influential, verse 6 identifies those people as Peter, James, the brother of our Lord, and John the Apostle. Uh, the trip in Acts 15 is before the whole church, the whole congregation. In Acts 11, we're told that there was a vision that prompted the gathering of the materials from Abacus, who said that there's going to be a, a famine. Uh, but what we have is not, in Acts 15, Paul and a delegation from Antioch are sent to Jerusalem because the church, the mother church, wants to know what's going on with this gospel. Nobody sins for Paul except for God. So I believe it's in that text. Now I will say for those who differ with me, we cannot be dogmatic about it. And what's important don't get so caught up in that argument that you miss what was being said. Now, the reality, the final straw for me, if the Jerusalem conference had met and had said officially, Gentiles do not have to become Jews in order to become Christians, I think Paul would have mentioned that. So we're going to take a look at what happens. And in this text, essentially what's going on the Apostle Paul receives a revelation from God. We don't know what it is. He doesn't go into detail. But God tells Paul, you need to go to Jerusalem. Paul does so after 14 years. I believe that this is making reference to 14 years after his conversion. He's already gone once to meet privately with Peter, and he did get to meet with James some. Now he's going back because God says it's time for you to go. And you need to come and make something clear. Now, what's happening? What is Paul doing in this text? I will explain this a little more clearly in a moment, but he's seeking confirmation. The text, if you read it casually without digging in, makes it look like Paul's having doubts. I did not want to be running or running now in vain, I wanted to be sure of something. He is seeking confirmation, but it's not about the gospel. Paul is very clear about this. He knows what the gospel is, and he's not going to back down. So he's seeking a different kind of confirmation. Folks, essentially what's happening here in these verses, Paul is talking about a trip where he went to Jerusalem to defend 
the very heart of the gospel itself. Now, the world in which you and I live, well, let's put it this way. There's a great need facing those of us who have embraced faith in Jesus Christ. And that need, we must stand ready to defend the gospel message when we find people challenging its truth, the truth that we have embraced. There was a time in my life as a minister, I rather naively took the position, we don't need to defend the good news. We don't need to defend the Bible. It's lasted for centuries, and it's going too long after. Uh, I once read of a, a scrawling on the New York subway wall, uh, God is dead, signed Nietzsche. Underneath it, somebody wrote, Nietzsche is dead, signed God. Uh, the reality is the truth is the truth, and we know that. Uh, God's word is never going to fail. But I did come to an understanding that we need to defend the good news. One, Jude says, contend for the faith. Uh, I believe the challenges of our faith that come to us Create for us roadblocks. Roadblocks to accomplishing what God has called us to do. Roadblocks where we are uncertain which detour path we should be on. And it's those roadblocks that can affect the message of our faith and the, tr- and the reality of what's going to happen. So today, I'm going to look at two roadblocks that this text mentions, that speaks to. And then I'm going to look at the consequence. What if we decide we don't need to defend the good news? What if we decide to just simply let things keep on going the way they've been going? Just come to church, sit in our comfortable pew, and don't worry about all of this. So the very first roadblock that we face today, roadblock number one, even some in the household of faith may not always understand our position. Please let that sink in a minute. People who are folks of faith, with whom we might have a disagreement, can't always see why we do what we do. And so that needs to be taken care of. We need to try to build bridges of conciliation. We need to try to help people understand. When Paul returns to Jerusalem, 14 years after his, his salvation, Paul's return focused on letting leaders know what his mission entailed. Did you catch what he said? He didn't go, again, he's not going because he wants them to say, yeah, Paul, you're right, you don't have to worry, keep on. Uh, He was certain of the gospel. But Paul Paul was a strong-willed person, I think we can safely say that. Paul was a man of deep conviction. He was independent. He knew that God had called him to do a job, and he was going to do that job. And he had gone on a different track than anybody else in the kingdom. He and Barnabas started something that no one else had tried, specifically going to preach to Gentiles. The church in Jerusalem and throughout Judea was focused on reaching Jewish people with the gospel of the Messiah. Paul is going after Gentiles. And so he differs in mission. He's differing in the purpose of what he's doing. So he goes to them and he talks to them. He kept communication open. 
because he recognized these people have importance. So what does he mean? I wanted to be sure I wasn't, I wasn't running in, in vain and I had not preached in vain. I believe it's simply this. Paul met with three pillars of the church and he wanted them to see the gospel I'm preaching is the gospel that you preach. Because he knew if they say, Paul, you're wrong, if they listen to him and say, no, we're not going to do that, he knew that the church in Jerusalem, seen by many as the mother church, was so powerful that if the leadership said, Paul, you're preaching the gospel wrong, it would forever have an impact on his ability to do what he was going to do. Their refusal to recognize his gospel would have been a tantamount to making it almost impossible for Paul to preach to the Gentiles. The pure gospel of faith, grace by faith, alone. So he goes knowing their shunning him would be catastrophic to what he was trying to do, to reach people with the message, we are saved by grace through faith alone. So he wants them to understand the message. He wants them to see that we're not preaching two different gospels. It is all about Jesus Christ who came, lived a perfect life, gave himself a sacrifice so that people could come into the kingdom of God. Those who trust him are now God's children. That's what we are all preaching. He wanted to be sure that they understood his message. He wanted to be sure that his witness to the Gentiles would continue unhindered. So what does that have to do with us? How does this connect with us? Well, simply put, folks, battle lines have often been drawn in Christian history because of misunderstanding. Baptists first show up on the scene in the 1600s. And virtually every decade since Baptists have existed, there have been some kind of battles that we have fought. Disagreements, arguments, wars almost, and that's been our history. It has also been the history of the Christian church. Battle lines have been drawn. We just seem ready to fight. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, we really seem ready to fight. Uh, uh, we hear a bell ring and we come out slugging and we, it usually comes along with all sorts of co- uh, charges. You're a heretic. You're a hate monger. You are judgmental. You are a liberal. You are spineless. You don't take a strong stance on sin. You are a fundamentalist. And we throw all sorts of labels at each other and we're ready to fight because you're wrong and I'm right. And the reality is, If you look very closely what's at the heart of those battles, you don't do things my way. And since you don't do things my way, you've got to be wrong. Pure and simple, because I'm right. So if you decide that you're going to meet on Saturdays instead of Sundays, if you decide to use wine instead of grape juice, if you decide all the different things that separate us, we're ready to do battle. Um, Maxie Dunham, 
a great commentator from a different heritage than ours, said, how many schisms in local churches and even national church bodies could have been averted if this lesson had been learned? Folks, I don't know where he was at, but I know this situation. In the rural community of Mississippi, where I grew up, there are two churches of the same denomination within half a mile of each other. No one remembers exactly what happened, but years ago, the original uh, congregation from which they came split over some minor point of doctrine. Some think it was an issue of conduct. And I'm just looking around, and ladies, you would have been in trouble. Whether women could cut and curl their hair. Now, In both congregations, women cut and curl their hair, and no one can describe any significant doctrinal differences in the two churches. I share with you, doctor, uh, one of my my professors uh, went to preach at a church on a Sunday, and he noticed something weird. He passed it, and when he turned around, it looked weird, and he found out on one one half of the roof was green, the other half was blue. When they repaired the roof, there were two power families of equal power. One wanted a green roof, one wanted a blue roof. They could not sway the vote, so they have half a green roof and half a blue roof. And the green roof people sit under the green roof. The blue roof people sit under the blue roof. And they're essentially two congregations separate, sitting in the same congregation. How many cleavages have come? Because we refuse to work at relationship. We refuse to build bridges. And we too easily forget that personal commitment and interpersonal communication are allies. I'm not saying that there are not some things that have weight in the discussions and the battles. And I'll deal with that in a moment. But far too often, the reason we fight, we want to. We want things done our way. And so I believe that we need to avoid the damage that can occur when the unity in the body of Christ loses its priority. I shared with you that uh, the fastest growing census uh, part in talking about religious beliefs, what religious belief have you, the fastest growing answer is none, N-O-N-E. And when asked, why don't you have any religious, why, why are you adverse to the Christian denomination, the Christian churches? The answer is, they don't love God, they don't love each other, and they sure don't love me. Every time we allow ourselves to be drawn into a battle, when infighting occurs, it inevitably leads to a loss of witness. I'm told by those who study these things, when there's a church fight, it takes approximately a full decade for the community to let go of that fight. Not the church itself, but the community will look at that church for 10 years and talk about the fight. We become our own worst enemies when we forget the tie that binds all of us together. You see, yeah, there are some differences, but by and large, most of those are secondary or even tertiary issues. The bedrock truth of the faith is held by everyone who truly knows Jesus Christ. 
And that is the tie that should bind us. The truth about who Christ is. So there are roadblocks that come from within. We just can't get along. The second roadblock, enemies of the faith will try to derail our efforts for the kingdom. I remember from when I was a child, I don't remember where or when I first heard it, statement that sounds a little paranoid, but you're not really paranoid if they're out to get you. And folks, the reality is the world is out to get us. Uh, we certainly do not have the type of persecution here that can be seen in other parts of the world, but the church as a whole is under fire all over the world. And Paul, when it came to this situation, Paul intensely described a group determined to undermine the mission to the Gentiles. Paul never read How to Win Friends and Influence People. Notice what he says about them. First of all, he uses the word brothers, but did you notice the little addition? They are false brothers. They're in amongst us. They're claiming to be people of faith, but they are false brothers who are diametrically opposed to the gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone. Then he says they were brought in. Now, we don't know who brought them in. We don't know where they brought in. Some people believe that in that private meeting, some folks forced their way into the meeting. Others will say, no, it happened in Antioch. We're not sure. But they were brought in for one reason, to spy them out. Folks, if you're a spy then most likely you are not intent on what is well and good for me and mine. And they were spying to determine, look at the freedom, so that they could in turn bring us back into slavery, Paul said. Now this is such an intensely emotional point for Paul. Verse 4 is not even a complete statement. Uh, ESV Notices the little dash other translations pointed out. He didn't finish the thought because it is such an overwhelming thought that there would be people who would be trying to undermine the gospel to bring people under the bondage of law that he is just frustrated. He's frustrated here. And he wants his readers to understand these people who've been talking to you who told you the gospel I'm sharing with you is not the real gospel. There was nothing true about anything that they were doing. They were threatening the very meaning of the gospel. Now, just in case you're not paranoid enough, let me give you something else. December 8, 1984, there was an article in the Spokesman Review out of Spokane, Washington, and it reported that there are an estimated 10,000 physicians who have phony foreign medical degrees that brought one broker of fraudulent diplomas $1.5 million over three years. This was testified to in front of a congressional panel. Claude Pepper, who was a Democrat from uh, Florida, a member of that panel, said many American systems may be receiving medical treatment from doctors who lied on their medical school loan applications and used the money not to go to school, but to pay a broker for fake documents, claiming they completed school and training. Pedro de, de, de Mesons, 
was one of those brokers who was caught. He wound up ultimately serving a three-year prison sentence for mail fraud and conspiracy. And he testified in front of the panel that in the three years, and I love his term, his three years of expediting medical degrees, uh, he provided about 100 clients with false transcripts showing they had fulfilled medical requirements of schools they didn't attend. And he said, citizens paid me from $5,225 to $27,000 for my services. And then the Messon said, in all, I earned about $1.5 million in those three years. I only got to keep 500000 of the total. The rest was went to bribes and expenses. And there is at least one report of a gentleman who died after complications of surgery with a man who had a phony degree. As horrible as that is, as terrible as that is, and we can only be glad, so glad that it was caught and the, the system was shut down, what these false teachers are doing is far worse. Because they're dealing with eternal destinies. They're making the good news of Jesus Christ trying to make it into a lie. And that would forever subvert what God was wanting to do through Paul. You see, we need to understand the very gospel itself continues to be attacked by wolves in sheep's clothing. Now you know that term. It's well used and it's basically used today for anyone who appears to be good who has bad intent in their heart. It could be a, a young man wooing a girl, getting her to be his girlfriend, and he's all bubblies and love and warmth and kindness, and as soon as they're connected, he turns into an abuser, into someone who controls. It can be used uh, of a politician. None of us know these politicians, do us, do we? A politician who promises everything during the election. Everything he knows his constituents want to hear. And then after he's elected, the promises go out the window. He was interested in getting elected. The list can go on and on of examples of bad people wanting to appear good. But, folks, this comes from the Word of God. It is found in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He's saying there will be people who will be claiming to be from God and their whole intent is to destroy the flock. And that's the reality of what is happening. So what needs to happen? How do we... This is when it is a real issue. Not a preference, not I like praise choruses, I like hymns. This is when the battle gets very real. It's at the heart of the gospel. We need to diligently defend the faith in face of such attacks. Now, I believe that the clearest defense against such wolves, you're going to be so surprised at this, Bay Vista, we must be clear on what the gospel truly is. In other words, we must know the Word of God. We must know it. We must live it. We must testify about it. 
we must be true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which means every person in here, hearing my voice, if you are a child of God, you should be a biblical scholar. Not in the sense of having gone to school to earn a degree, but you need to be in the Word constantly, making sure that you understand it, digging deep into what it says. Because there are people out there in the world who are saying, thus saith the Lord, whose intent is evil. And we need to be careful. We cannot, we cannot be spoon-fed throughout our lives. We must diligently study the Word to show ourselves approved, to be sure that we can handle the Word of truth. So there's a roadblock from within when we don't understand and aren't trying to understand each other. And there's a roadblock from those who will want to twist the faith, who would want to say the good news is nothing. It's a lie. It's not true. Uh, have you noticed? I, I, I did not notice any in the Gulf Coast this year, but springing across our country during the Christmas season, there are now organizations putting up billboards that say reason is the reason for the season. In other words, atheistic groups who are saying faith is a lie. We need to be ready. Why? Let's take a look at the, the consequence. If we do nothing, if we just sit within the comfortable pew and do nothing, roadblocks unanswered can cause setbacks to our witness. If we don't deal with these roadblocks, we will become ineffective for the kingdom of God. When you look at Paul, Paul drew a line that he would not cross, knowing the irreparable damage that was threatening the gospel. What was the line? Well, it's wrapped up in a guy named Titus that Paul had with him. Titus was a Gentile believer. And apparently there was a move during this time frame to try to make Titus be circumcised. Now, we know that Paul had Timothy circumcised, and he refuses to let Titus. There's not a contradiction there, there's just a reality. And I'm not sure how much you know about Timothy. His mother was Jewish, his father was Gentile. Paul knew that if he had an uncircumcised Jewish team member going out and preaching the gospel, Paul's normal practice would be to go to the Jewish community in town first, preach the gospel, and then go to the Gentiles. He knew if he had an uncircumcised Jew and he took them in to preach, the Jewish people would stop their ears and wouldn't listen. But Titus is a Gentile. Uh, there was no reason for him to be circumcised. Uh, and so he comes up. Some people believe Paul brought Titus as a test case. I believe he brought Titus for one reason. Titus was an example that the gospel can reach Gentiles. I don't think Paul was trying to start a fight. He's saying, this is living proof of what I've been telling you. And when it was suggested that Titus be circumcised, Paul says no. Now it's possible that James, Peter, and John, and there are a lot of scholars who believe this, may have been leaning toward Titus being circumcised simply because it would help calm the 
situation down. If we go ahead and do this, then it will be a less stressful situation. And a lot of things have been done for expediency. Let's just do something so we'll calm people down. But Paul explicitly understands something. If these men did say, well, Paul, can't you circumcise Titus? Paul knew that if they did that, then Titus would be the test case. And from that point on, around the world, the church would insist all Gentiles must be circumcised in order to become a Christian. So the Judaizers would have won. Even if they were saying, you know, Paul, if you just do this, we could talk. Paul knew, no, if we do this, the talking is over. The gospel is compromised. The truth of salvation by grace through faith alone has gone out the window, and we're not going to do that. And I love it. He says, for not one moment, thinking out, not even a second did we think about it. And I want you to notice, when Paul made his case, those pillars did not try to force Titus to be circumcised. And a huge battle was won that day. All Gentile believers are believers because of faith in Christ. If Paul had given in, again, it would have been disastrous. So, for you and I, ignoring teachings that subvert the very gospel itself in the name of unity is not an option. I've been accused at times of being one who talks about unity to unity at all costs, and that has never been my message, that has never been my heart. The reality, if we're going to ignore the truth of God's word to make people happy, We're appeasing, folks. We are not making headways. Some of you, if you're history buffs, will know the name Neville Chamberlain. Chamberlain was Prime Minister of the United Kingdom from May uh, 1937 to May 1940. He is best known as history for his foreign policy of appeasement. When Adolf Hitler was rattling his sabers, Chamberlain said, the best thing we can do is give him a little bit. And so on September 30th, 1938, Neville Chamberlain signed the Munich Agreement, which ceded the German-speaking Sudetenland region of Czechoslovakia to Nazi Germany. And he thought that would be the end of it. This was Czechoslovakian territory. But the people spoke German, so let's give him the German speakers. He'll be satisfied. Well, if you know history, on September 1st, 1939, Adolf Hitler invaded Poland, launching the Second World War. When folks talk about Chamberlain today, that's primarily the one thing they think of. He tried to appease a monster. He was followed by Winston Churchill. Uh, I think it's interesting, Churchill has often been called a bulldog, and he kind of looks like one. 
He's strong, he's powerful, and he knew we cannot give in to Adolf Hitler. And his speeches during World War II that inspired the people of Great Britain not to give up, to keep fighting every step of the way, was a large part of the end of Adolf Hitler. You see, the reality is there is no pressure that is quite as weighty or as subtle. Give in a little bit so you'll make people happy. Give in a little bit. It won't hurt if you say, well, we don't have to think about this. We don't have to talk about that. Let's just keep everything bubbly and airy and make everybody feel good. And all of a sudden, we're like Paul's warning to Timothy. We are preachers scratching itchy ears. Tickling ears. If we surrender the basic fundamentals of our faith for the sake of others, for conciliation, it erodes our spiritual power, it erodes our credibility and the integrity of our witness. Now, there's nothing wrong with conciliation per se, I've already told you, if we can work through minor issues and say, you are my brother, folks, we have a Lutheran church just a block away from us. Uh, If I can say, you are teaching salvation by grace through faith alone, you're my brother. Then we can find ways to work together. Here we're talking about when people completely are saying or rewriting what the good news is about. And we need to stand. We need to know when we must stand so that the truth is not lost. There are secondary matters that can be compromised and we can work together. Uh, this, this congregation knows this. Those of you who are here for Katrina, uh, the Baptist disaster relief, Baptist men were here almost as soon as the storm was gone. And then you had other groups as well from other denominational entities that were down here serving, helping, getting food to people, getting supplies to people. And I did not hear anyone. I was over in Pearl River County. I didn't hear a single person say, we're not going to accept your help because you're not one of us. There are secondary issues, but the bedrock of our faith, those matters that all believers hold cannot be sacrificed. The triune God, that we serve a God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. The very deity of Christ himself. His atoning work of sacrifice, that salvation is bought because Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, went to Calvary to give the perfect sacrifice, was raised from the dead that we could call God Father. Those things are bedrock. The trustworthiness of God's word, it will stand forever. Those are the things we hold on. And in those bedrock matters, we need to take a cue from someone out of church history, Martin Luther. Martin Luther is one of those people that I think if I ever got a chance to to know him, if I'd ever met him, there would be times I would love him to death. There would be other times I would want to give him a thomping maybe, but I'm pretty sure he would do, it would work the other way around. In the city of Worms, Germany, April 17, 1521, Luther is brought before the Diet of Worms, a religious trial called from the Roman Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Emperor. 
And he was told, you must recant all of your writings. You must say that this gospel you are preaching of salvation by faith through work is not the truth. You need to come back to where you were. Luther asked for a day to pray. And when he met with the Diet afterwards, this was his response. Your serene emperor and you lustrous princes and gracious lords, you demand a clear and direct answer. Here it is, plain and unadulterated. I cannot and I will not recant. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. God, help me. Amen. And there were others who came before him. Peter Waldo, a Frenchman, who wanted the people of France to understand the word of God, so he began translating it. You had Girolamo Savonarola from Italy, who addressed, stressed the authority of Scripture over against the ecclesiastical hierarchy of Rome. Then you had Jan Hus from Bohemia, now the modern-day Czech Republic, uh, who said... When he was martyred, you can kill the goose, and the Czechoslovakian word for goose is hus. You can kill the goose, but a hundred years after me will come a swan that you cannot kill. It was almost a hundred years to the day that Luther is said to have uh, hammered the 95 theses on the Wittenberg door. There were people who said, we cannot back down from what we believe. And then there was John Wycliffe, one of my favorites, a Brit, who had a heart that everybody should be able to read the good news in their own language. So he began a translation of the, the Word of God from the original languages into English. He also was martyred. Folks, Our faith is being challenged on many levels today. That's just the reality. The question is, will we bend over so far backwards to appease that we lose sight of who we are? Or will we stand firm? Will we decide we're not just going to sing about trusting the Word of God? We're going to live it. We're going to let it be our heart. Will we stand true to the reality of our faith? And will we stand true to our call to proclaim this good news to all? So I ask you today, as you bow your heads and close your eyes, I'm asking you to surrender yourself to the hand of God Almighty. Let us so yield ourselves to God that we will stand ready to give an answer for the hope we have. Let's surrender our lives to God Almighty today that we will have the courage to stand for the truth of God's good news in Jesus Christ. We will not accept counterfeits. We will not accept editing of the truth, amending the truth, and we will proclaim the students of the Word 
the reality of our faith. We need to stand. And we can do nothing other. We need to be people of conviction. Pray with me. Almighty God, I come to you in the strong name of Jesus. And Lord, I fully, I'm fully aware that there are people out there in the world who, who don't mind us being here. They don't mind us being in church. What they mind is us taking the good news of Jesus Christ out into the real world. There are people out in the world who would love to silence us. And Father, there are times it seems frighteningly close that they will. And in those times and in those moments when we feel ourselves buckling, help us to remember that your word declares the darkness cannot overcome the light. Help us remember that your word is truth and life. And help us to bravely Stand for that truth in the face of whatever. Help us to work with brothers and sisters in the Lord. And Father, put an end to the bickering and fighting that has so marked so many generations. Help us understand the enemy is not those who truly confess Christ as Lord. Give us courage, Father. Help us to stand firm. Help us to know the foundation of the Word and that if we do what the Word teaches us, the storms can rage, but the house of the Lord will stand. I ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. If you'd like to meet one-on-one with me to talk about any decision might be going on in your heart, we can meet out in the portico later and come back in if it's so needed. But folks, we need to take a stand. And we need to do so with a godly character. So, your next-door neighbor who says you believe a lie, Please don't hit them over the head with the Bible. Love them. Pray for them. Continue to speak. And you might be amazed at what you find.